0: Hey everyone, this is Cassius Felicella, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast for students looking to break into the startup space. And today, we're speaking with two incredible people at Big Idea Ventures, Nick Sargiano and Dr. Dalal Algawas. So both of these individuals have been working at Big Idea Ventures to closely assess new talent and who is accepted into the program. For those that don't know, Big Idea Ventures is a hybrid venture firm encompassing an accelerator as well as funding in the alternative protein space. So without further ado, I want to jump into the episode so they can provide a bit more of a description on what the program is, as well as what they're excited about in the space and what you can expect from them in the near future. Given that you guys are a global business, you're a global firm, how do you do your sourcing? Because we've got the typical, for example, I've interviewed a lot of Y Combinator companies. Y Combinator almost solely focuses on California and the United States. Sometimes they've gone to LATAM, for instance, they've gone to Europe, but by and large, they stay stay where they're located. How have you guys managed to, quite frankly, deal with all of these people wanting to be part of your firm? What exactly is your filtering process when it comes to picking the best companies today and the ones that will be in the future as well?
1: I think there's two ways where we kind of like get to understand like what companies do. Um, the first way is obviously um, companies can apply to our, our Big Idea Ventures uh, website, and and then we get a lot of I guess healthy deal flow from global uh, from from companies all over the world. And the other way, I guess, is because we do have a like huge mentor network and investor relation network. Um, We do get a lot of referrals and a lot of like the the community is, I guess, very close. Everyone knows each other and we're all here trying to build up um, alternative protein, the whole industry. So we get a lot of connections and email um, connections from a lot of our partners as well.
2: Yeah, I I would just add on top of it, you know, because it's such a fast pace and, you know, I would say every week there's a new deal. Whenever we come across like, any interesting article or new like advancement, we literally just go and stalk them. We find them on social media, we find them on LinkedIn, um, and we just you know chase them down. We get on a call with them. Like, Do you guys want money? Are you looking for investment? Um, and then you know of course that's that's how you know things go. But. Um, I think in general, what we would advise is it's, it's important to really stay on top of it. If you want to source the best deals, our, let's say, selection process is, yeah, year round. So, you know, we we make sure that, you know, we're speaking to companies on a regular basis and, you know, you have to be, of course, approachable, you know, as as investors, we can't be sort of the stiff collared type of investor to make sure that we can, you know, really, really, I guess, like. Uh, you know, gain the trust of our founders. At the end of the day, it is a scary journey for them. They need a lot of handholding. They need guidance, support. And because it's such a hot space, everybody wants to invest. But we, we always tell them that, you know, it's important to pick the strategic investor, pick smart money, you know, let's say investors that have connections that can really help support your company growth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is a question. I have more for you, Dr. Dalal. You're traditionally a researcher. The food tech space is really interesting to me because there are so many moving parts. Not only do you have research, tissue engineering, like the actual people that are growing the meat in the lab, and then you have the sales team. You've got the distribution team. You've got the marketing team. All these moving parts make it even more difficult for a CEO to communicate the vision because, You've got to talk differently to engineers than sales, than marketing, than product. How exactly does all that work? I mean, what advice do you typically give for the founders? What have you seen work? What have you seen not work um, for individuals who might be listening, interested, in applying?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's challenging. So I, I think when we evaluate companies, you know, we always say that the team composition is the most important factor. Um, and the reason for that is, of course, communications, you know, can they work with multiple stakeholders? Um, I would say for, you know, founders who are very technical, they will perhaps struggle the most because they're used to, you know, let's say, working with very complex, um, you know, ideas and, and concepts. And, you know, kind of communicating that to a lay audience will always be, you know, let's say a skill. I think, you know, we guide our founders to, let's say, improve their communication skills in fact, you know, in, in the very, let's say, beginning of our accelerator program, we, we typically start off with everything like pitch, you know, practice from building out like very short, concise, you know, summaries of their company and business models. We really drill into them that it's important to, to simplify, you know, everything that you do. And at the same time, you know, we, we give them a crash course of like every single topic so that at least, you know, they will have general concepts of everything um of course you know what we would encourage is that you you know employ a team or or let's say um, i guess gather a team of experts in their own fields but at the very early stage when you have one or, or let's say two or three co-founders they, they really have to like make sure that they know everything it's a, it's a building process but i think you know in, in general um you know people are forgiving if they don't if they're not like let's say the expert down to the T in every single concept. But they need to have an overall, let's say, view of what's going on and, of course, effectively communicate it.
0: For sure. I'm wondering what is something that's counterintuitive about the process, both that you have seen building Big Idea, but also in the companies that you've worked with. What is something that you thought was going to be easier and it was actually harder? What was something that you thought would be really hard and it actually turned out to be easier?
2: I I guess um, when we look at, you know, Big Idea Ventures as a company, we we thought it would be, you know, definitely hard to fundraise in the very beginning. You know, we, of course, you know, we were like, you know, a VC that had recently like incorporated back in 2019. At that time, we had funding from two major investors, including Temasek, which is the Singapore sovereign Wealth Fund, and Tyson Ventures, the arm of Tyson Foods. So we, when we started, literally like five months later, it was the pandemic. So I think a lot of us were of course disrupted like many other industries. We, we thought that, you know, it's going to be very difficult for our founders to fly over to our locations in New York, Singapore, and Paris. How are we going to survive? How are we going to thrive? But I think, you know, everyone has quickly adapted, to say, this virtual yeah transition. So moving everything online. And, you know, we, we did manage to, again, like close our first fund, a $50 million fund called the New Protein Fund One, to, you know, back all of our innovative startups. Um, it, it hasn't really slowed our operations. So I think this is something that we thought would be very challenging, but in fact was quite easy and helped us to be fully integrated on the global scale. I would say still like some of the challenges that remain, um, especially for our companies that want to leverage infrastructure. Um, you know, it's, it is really important that they, they actually fly over to these, let's say food tech hubs around the world, especially where we're based. And, you know, let's say meet those, the, meet people face to face, really let's say establish, you know, their, their R&D processes. I think this is something that, you know, we we hope is going to improve in the coming months and hopefully the coming year. I would say similarly, it's the same for our startups, sort of that transition during the COVID era of how to, let's say, manage supply chains, the expectations for delays, especially with equipment or sourcing or even container delays. So I think, you know, all of us um, have, let's say, been surprised at some of the efficiencies and the sense of connectivity and reaching out to different stakeholders online um, but you know, I would say at the same time, uh, these disruptions in supply chain um, are, are you know something that we really have to manage and and kind of be careful of in terms of our, our business viability.
0: That's a question that I have as well. Like, how how do these pitches take place? Because you've got this deck, you've got these really enthusiastic people saying this is our product, and it's going to be available in two years. How do you screen versus someone that wow, this individual is going to make it happen versus this guy, this girl, they're just exuding the bravado of someone in this space. Definitely. We, we rely a lot on our scientific experts like Dr. Dalal. Um, we have scientific fellows such as Dr. Howe,
1: who's an expert in like cultured meat as well. Um, I think that's a difference in terms of our due diligence process than a lot of others because we are like very niche in, in terms of like alternative protein. So I think my kind of job when I do kind of screen uh, and do the, the, do the initial due diligence process of a lot of these companies is understanding if the founder is you know, passionate, they're like, obviously a madman for like really starting in such an early uh, industry. And then, you know, we go, go into further uh, discussions um, where we, we invite our, our scientific team and, and um, our experts, and that way we kind of understand more about the technology. So I think we do, it's a pretty rigorous process, but we, we try to be as safe as possible when it comes to like screening these companies.
2: Yeah, and I would just add, you know, not only having, let's say, um, a very like established scientific team with both, let's say, cell biology and food science like backgrounds, uh, we also consult regularly with food corporates. So we have monthly meetings with like some of the biggest food companies from around the world to assess the feasibility of these technologies, especially when it comes to like scalability and upscale production. So I think having that corporate insight as well, um, has really helped us to, I guess, you know, evaluate and I guess de-risk our investments in the best possible way.
0: It sucks we're approaching time. This is such a good conversation. But I want to talk about Singapore. What makes Singapore such a great market for this? Like, what makes it kind of the Silicon Valley of food tech, if you will? What do you think so special about it? Being such a small country, change is definitely a lot easier to get whether it comes from
1: smaller companies or even like the government itself. um, There are a lot of, I guess, grants and a lot of ways that the government is supporting that helps like smaller startups like kind of like establish and they're able to succeed in this kind of environment.
2: I think what, what's happened is, you know, they, they've invested billions in the sort of um, the, the agribusiness, you know, sector. And especially because the whole country is aligned on food security goals or food self-sufficiency goals. There's actually like a, a phrase here called um, like 30 by 30. So um, right now, Singapore imports 90 percent of its food. And they're hoping to kind of be self-sufficient in food production by 30% by 2030. So that's really like the, the government goal that's like driving a lot of policy, regulations, and, you know, let's say the openness for innovation in the country so for instance you know the the reason why big idea ventures are present and why other sort of specialists you know incubators vcs and also um, i guess like special multinational corporations that focus on alternative protein and these innovative food technologies are all here it's essentially a food tech hub in in southeast asia what we what we tell companies of course because the singapore market is quite small is that they should always use it as a launch pad. Use it as a launch pad to be able to fundraise, to be able to set up, you know, let's say, your, your company entity. And then, of course, you know, with the state-of-the-art facilities, enhance your R&D, build up your intellectual property, do a pilot launch and get, let's say, initial market feedback. Once you have all of that together, then it's very easy to take it off to, let's say, a larger, let's say, co manufacturer you know, nearby. It could be in Thailand, Indonesia or even Malaysia. And then sort of build up that rigorous, you know, let's say market expansion, and really expand, you know, around the region. Um, and it's really important to kind of have the right uh, foundation. And we really believe that Singapore can can help companies build that.
0: Definitely, A- absolutely. I'm wondering as well, when people think of cellular agriculture, when people think of food tech. I think they think of the companies you mentioned, Nick, the burger companies. They manage they see a plant burger at a fast food restaurant that they can buy. But it's far more sophisticated than that. There are far more companies in this space that are doing incredible things. What would you say you're most optimistic about in this kind of vertical?
2: Yeah, so I think like of course in the beginning, the the most, let's say, successful companies were focused on meat analogs. I think what's been realized is that in the food supply chain, um, everything contains animal products. So this is really about a movement of displacing every single type of animal product. And that would, of course, encompass meat, dairy, seafood. Then if you want to break it down even further, it's, it spans everything from the savory to the confectionery segments. And this can also transcend, of course, you know, food services. How can we create sort of complete supply chains that are vegan? So there are a lot of challenges, especially when you know, we need to make sure that if we're looking at, for instance, plant protein, you know, it has to have the exact same properties as their animal, you know, counterparts. And this would be even be, you know, let's say, more complicated in the confectionery space where you don't really see it. But for instance, like the eggs, how they behave, or even the butter, or we really need to to come up with solutions to create these very like interesting and very complex products. I think what's also happened is you know, let's say the uh, the convergence of like biotechnology into this space. So, you know, utilizing, you know, industries like fermentation. So how can we create, you know, proteins from scratch? Not only, let's say, manipulating plant proteins, but really leveraging either like recombinant DNA technology to actually program microorganisms to produce something that is animal sourced. Or it could be the, the stem cell sort of based technologies where we take cells and differentiate them to become like pieces of meat or animal analogs. You know, what what I always like to give as an example is when you look at, let's say a product, and it could be just a simple egg. With eggs, you know, they're so versatile. We fry them, we scramble them, we boil them. They're used to different heating temperatures. Um, And of course, when you look at the localization, every single cuisine has their own type of product. So we need to make sure that whatever we're developing can be just as adaptable. 100%
1: of I think when you look at a consumer's point of view also what we're excited about is how to kind of adapt the consumer to alternative protein and you think of meat analogs being kind of difficult especially because it's the start of the meal but you see a lot of other kind of technologies in the plant-based space like oat milk where you people kind of substitute it inside their coffee and everything it's a lot easier to introduce that to the consumer and slowly develop their mindset in terms of like consuming more alternative protein products the technology side, with like the, the fermentation based or the cell-based companies, I think those are more a lot more driven like regulation and like being able to find a proof of concept that they can kind of pilot and and like and produce for the consumers itself.
0: This is my favorite question to ask guests. What are both of you passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot?
2: Like, like I, I, I would definitely say for me, what what drives me every day is working with people. So working with the founders, I think seeing them grow and blossom into these you know you know burgeoning companies especially when we go into sort of very early stage investments uh, for instance we even do venture building say type of um, uh, of strategies where you know it'll be a company that really needs to establish a team get some you know um, initial r and d and then you know sort of take off i think seeing that journey and when we see them like you know close their first fundraise and move on to the next step of like you know scaling up the product moving from like the pilot scale, sorry, moving from the lab scale to the pilot scale, and then even the co-manufacturing scale, or it could be expanding into new markets. I think just seeing that growth, and because it's just so fast, this is what I always tell people. If you want to be an entrepreneur, for instance, you only need two years to assess if your company is viable in the alternative protein space. And that's something that I'm really passionate about, just seeing people grow and just seeing the potential
1: definitely speaking with, with the companies and working with them day to day you know being inspired by what they do um, that definitely inspires me as well because a lot of these companies, they're really tackling the global problems you know like food security, you know global warming, uh, animal cruelty, but being able to kind of connect that to the consumer's point of view and kind of understanding their problems itself, whether it's like taste, cost, nutrition aspects uh, being able to kind of relate to that and helping them understand that and improve their products and at the same time becoming more valuable for the consumer itself. Um, and connecting all those issues. I, I've seen a lot of more value, I guess, in a lot of the companies that we work with because they're able to kind of look at it as a, as a consumer point of view, and then
0: hopefully they'll be able to succeed in, in the years to come. Okay, so this concludes our conversation with Nicholas Sargono and Dr. Dalal Alkawas. If you like this episode, be sure to give it a download as well as a rating and review wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Cassius Velocella. Thanks for listening.